My guest today is Sam Cooper, award-winning investigative journalist and publisher of The Bureau. We discuss his recent bombshell report on a massive mortgage fraud scheme in Toronto, how the new Toronto model relates to what's commonly known as the Vancouver model and the foreign entities involved. Sam's story has far-reaching implications with potentially disastrous consequences for Canada's real estate market and the national economy. This episode is a must-listen for Canadians and Americans alike. Stay tuned. Sam Cooper, back again, man. It's good to see you. It's good to be back. Thank you. Yeah, man. Well, you know, after our first episode together, I had so many people reach out that were like, dude, what is going on? Like, you just kind of pulled the ground out from a whole lot of people because, you know, I think that, you know, generally people are aware that there's foreign interference in our government and in our political system, but they're not aware of the extent, you know? Yeah, I agree. And, you know, um, uh, a former RCMP guy who's cited in my book, uh, Gary Clement, who's been there at the start of this corruption, he's done an op-ed for the Bureau. And, and he writes that things like the Arrive Can scandal and this kind of, you know, what appears to be some pretty deep corruption and maybe bid rigging involving bureaucrats and maybe a front company that's, you know, parceling out contracts. And I read this morning in a Quebec newspaper had earned 250 million over the years during during this current federal government, you know, without, you know, naming names or making allegations based on what I know and what Gary Clement wrote in his op-ed was essentially, look, Canada, we have broad problems. We need deep reforms right now. And pretty much it all relates to what I've been hammering the table on, and that is transnational crime and Canada's weakness. And I'll never, I'll never, you know, verge my reporting until someone can give me evidence that the opposite is true. That's not happening. Now academics are following my reporting with, you know, their version of rigorous research and saying Canada is a haven for global financial crime. And I'm saying this relates to, you know, corruption in contracts. It relates to why your cars are being shipped to China or, or Africa, stolen off the streets of our cities. It relates to how Hezbollah and, you know, the Chinese Communist Party and Mexican cartels are woven into these, uh, you know, threat networks in Canada. And it's not a theory of everything. It's just <laughs> I'm finding that everything does relate to our weakness to organized crime interrelated to hostile state activity. That's the big problem in Canada now. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's rampant. Right. And, and, you know, like, yeah. Do, do you have something to add to that? No, you know, go off on it. It's rampant. And, you know, my, my whole niche I've been reporting for about 20 years now is again, as I tell people so many times, I'm just one of those Canadians that, had a hardworking young family that couldn't own a home. And because I was a journalist, you know, you know, being an entrepreneurial sort of aspiring and self-starter, I started pitching stories to get to the bottom of why I and my generation couldn't afford homes. And, you know, it, it mattered to me. It matters to everyone of our generation. And I had to discover why. And the more I find, the more I get shocked. Rampant is the right word. And when I say that this, I believe, will relate to, you know, corruption around bid rigging, 
why your car is getting, you know, showing up in Saudi Arabia and <laughs> pinging you on, on your iMac. Yeah. Look, I've been writing about this stuff for about a decade now, and people can research my history and go, oh, that, you know, CBC did a great story about a car showing up in a Dubai lot. Look, <laughs> I hate, I don't always speak in the third person, but Sam Cooper reported <laughs> that first. Hey, man. No, I, I look, I, I, I think you deserve all of the all of the accolades uh, because it, you're you're on top of something that very few people are covering and you know the question for me has always been why why aren't they talking about it as somebody who was raised in Vancouver it was evident since the 90s and i mean probably even earlier it's just that's as far back as i can remember but it was evident what was happening right like it was right in front of our faces and you know for years People in our community, in my community where I grew up in Richmond, were screaming about this. Like, hey, do you guys not see what's going on here? In my neighborhood alone, we had like four or five birthing homes. We knew what they were, right? Mm -hmm. we, you could see different pregnant women coming in and out all the time, right? And for, for our American listeners and other Canadians who are unaware of what these are, these are basically places where women from China go to have children so that their child is a Canadian citizen when they're born. Because if you're born in Canada, you automatically get citizenship. And we had four or five of those operating in our neighborhoods, right? Like we had organized crime going on within our tiny little country town, south mm -hmm. of Vancouver, right? And mm -hmm. so, so, you know, you kind of answered the first question I wanted to ask, because it's something that's kind of been itching at me was what drove you to, to start digging into this. And I guess it was just your similar experiences, right? Um, yeah, it's probably about three or four things. One, you know, I went to the University of Toronto, very motivated to be, you know, a lawyer, uh, you know, a really rigorous, uh, I didn't know where I'd land, but I had a sense of justice. I wanted to make good money. You know, I wanted <laughs> to be a good professional. Right. And somewhere along the line, I got you know, I think it was around the O.J. Simpson trial, I said, well, lawyers are not always about the truth, <laughs> right? And so, you know, my my love of writing sort of filtered into what I wanted to do. So automatically, as soon as I became a professional reporter, I just found, you know, my love of justice and the law, facts, rigor. I was, I loved sitting in court. And it, to me, it was like going to law school, listening to the lawyers argue back and forth and the judge gatekeeping the evidence. And sometimes it was a good result. Sometimes it was bad, but I found I could use, you know, whatever capacities uh, my parents have given me in that way. I'll add, you know, um, a lot of people can get filtered out of doing these stories because as you know, the podcaster, Jesse Brown once said it, it gets squenchy when you're talking about migration and diasporas and you know how how this can relate to hostile state activity and what i was seeing in vancouver a lot of reporters you know could get filtered out because it's difficult when you were you were saying hey i think you know it's time to talk about no one knows where this money comes from and i've uh, faced you know all the kind of slings and arrows that come with that but it didn't I'm less bothered probably than the majority of people. If I think the evidence is true, I'm not going to be pushed off. And I, I kind of, I, I, I do credit my, my father who uh, went off to boarding school in Switzerland with a bunch of rich people, uh, you know, some dictators from, from Eastern Europe and Asia were there, uh, some immensely rich people. And, you know, he came back from that, uh, 
he his parents wanted to be him you know a big business person or diplomat and he he just brushed that aside he became a you know a, a religious sort of a pastor and he taught me a lot about the networks that he was the milieu that, that he was in in switzerland and you know he met good people and bad people he knew of dictators he knew of criminals he knew of people from good families and sort of he he taught me a lot i think about how the world you know sorts itself out so that's part of my upbringing you know that that and love for the law love for writing and i just find myself you know fascinated to keep digging deeper into these stories and that's why i do it yeah and I, I, we could do a whole podcast on that so I'll, i'm going to push that to the side for now because that sounds like an amazing story unto itself but i want to start by talking about a story that you put out recently um i was floored uh, you know, you, I, I, I'd seen you post on X, Hey guys, big story coming. This could change things forever. And, uh, you know, people generally, they say those sorts of things. And now when you say that sort of stuff, I actually take it seriously because you're not a sensationalist in any, in it by any means. I've got to back it up. Right. Be done. Right. So I, I, of, of course I'm a subscriber to the bureau. And if you're not a subscriber to the bureau watching this, please go and subscribe because it's very much worth it. And I opened my email that morning and I read the story and I couldn't believe what I was reading. So, uh, Sam, can you go into it? And and what I'm re re referencing here is the mortgage fraud story that you did. Yeah, you know, three sentences of context, as you know, for a decade now, I had been following the story of how Vancouver's real estate market was just absurdly priced beyond Canadian incomes. And that was the subject of my book. I, you know, revealed what's now called by academics, the Vancouver model of money laundering. This is how underground banking specifically to China cycles into Canada's economy, specifically casinos and real estate. And yet there was like fogginess and mystery around. I knew, you know, from my sources that read how I piece things together these are people that, you know, involved in hedge funds and finance, you know, in Canada and the United States. Yeah. And they said, you've got the underground nodes, right? But at the end of the day, the banks are issuing major loans. You know, your, st your story is going to include international banking at some point. So let's jump to this story. Uh, a very principled uh, young business school graduate from Vancouver uh, got promoted up the chain in HSBC Canada moved over to Ontario, started working in the Aurora branch. That's a, a suburb, a fluent suburb on the edge of Toronto. And what they came across blew their mind in the same way my mind was blown when I discovered that hockey bags of cash are being accepted in BC government casinos. Right. This person contacted me in the summer and uh, the email was, was memorable. I think it was the first quote in this story we're talking about. It was something like... Uh, I discovered a huge mortgage fraud specific to one country, China, with people claiming uh, fake Chinese jobs. He went further and said, I believe this is linked to Toronto's real estate prices because, you know, as I discovered from the whistleblower and documents, he uh, came to believe that HSBC and other uh, banks in Toronto were issuing just tremendous amounts of mortgage loans to, to people in the diaspora community that for whatever reason were able to claim incredibly exaggerated incomes and specifically fake incomes in China during the pandemic. 
And so he provided documents to me. Uh, the title of the story is Fake Chinese Income Mortgages Fueling Toronto Real Estate Bubble. And it was proven, I believe. You know, I brought in seven prominent Canadian experts to uh, to review my work, to review the whistleblower's documents. And in a nutshell, you know, as everyone remembers, during the pandemic, you could kind of, you know, get away with not going into work. People still try to do it to this day. And, and so this provides the context of uh, not only, you know, a new scam, but uh, amplifying a scam that's been operative, I've found, for years. Uh, so people during the pandemic, specifically in the diaspora, Chinese diaspora, could claim they're, they're working remote jobs in China and yet staying in Canada. So they were claiming incomes of, you know, uh, 300,000 up to over 700,000 for remote work jobs in China that were pure fiction. So we're talking jobs like a project manager, office manager, data analyst, and their, their, uh, their mortgage applications at this branch where my whistleblower worked were approved by people that accepted forged documents straight from China fraud mills. These are the same sort of fraud mills, I, I believe and assess, that are behind some of the immigration scams. There was a great CBC enquete or investigation story about how you've got these call centers in China that'll uh, they'll they'll answer the phone and verify pure pure fiction forgeries. And so to to end the you know the first answer here, I had to assess was my whistleblower accurate that these were real, that is fraudulent fake loans, it was happening at scale, and did it fit into money laundering? And I found indeed it did, because uh, FinTrack put out a massive alert in 2023 on how what we call the Vancouver model had evolved. And that is during the pandemic, because casinos were shut, Chinese organized crime, underground global banking networks started to just flow wire transfers from China and Hong Kong into Canadian bank accounts of people that were in the diaspora and they're just uh, their fronts or they're, they were called money mules or nominees. These people are using their Canadian bank accounts to buy real estate for, for people in China, Hong Kong, people in organized crime that are flowing wire transfers into Canada. So there's a few more pieces to this, but I, I proved, according to the experts and my own sort of work, that the whistleblower was right. Hundreds of millions in fake income loans. This is impacting Toronto's real estate market. And uh, I plugged it into the mystery of, you know, what's happening in Vancouver as well. So for we, we have a lot of American listeners and, and they're just starting to kind of catch on to this. The same thing is happening in a lot of major American towns and cities now. So just for the sake of, of people who, who may not be familiar, can you explain the Vancouver model and then explain what's now what we're now coming to understand as the Toronto model? Yeah, so uh, it, in simple terms, uh, everyone knows China, I guess the second biggest economy after the United States. Unfortunately, they've got there uh, through the Chinese Communist Party ripping off IP around the world and working directly with transnational crime in you know global money laundering uh, uh, operations, there's lots of uh, lots of great 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 people in China, and yet the corruption is so endemic 
that uh, the, the very top level of the Chinese Communist Party and organized crime, essentially, and, you know, the People's Liberation Army own the vast majority of wealth. And they are uh, the people, you know, in the party are moving that wealth around the world. Because uh, as we know, you know, if Xi Jinping wants to eliminate one of his princeling rivals that's tried a coup against him or something like that, he's going to throw them and their whole network in jail, right? And so people in China, that is the elite, are always on pins and needles. They like to send their money abroad. And let's sum it up here. We know they've got that $50,000 currency restriction, US dollars per year on, on anyone in China. And so to get around that, what they do is they have relationships with organized crime in Chinese diaspora around the world. They make underground banking deals where they say, uh, let's just say a corrupt official in uh, Beijing uh, wire transfers $1 million into a bank controlled by a triad in uh, Guangzhou, Southern China, and says, I'm flying to Vancouver January you know, 1st, 2024. Uh, I need a million dollars when I arrive in Vancouver. I'm going to launder it through a casino and real estate. Set me up. So they deposit that in, uh, you know, the bank in southern China. They arrive in Vancouver and the organized crime, uh, you know, underground bank has cash that they, you know, have piled up in warehouses from fentanyl, etc., working with Mexican cartels. They will, you know, either lend that cash out directly to this person from Beijing, which is what I discovered when I broke the casino story. And that is, you know, the basic step of the Vancouver model. You get your wealth out of China, your bank account, by making a deal with the gangster who uses the, the drug cash in North America, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Seattle, <laughs> New York, right? It's happening in the, in the States too. And that this is how Las Vegas, of course, and this is how they, you know, get money out of China. So it's facilitating organized crime around the world. It's facilitating, you know, wealthy people in China getting their money out. And it's also, as my, uh, as my Toronto Method story shows, it's using what we can just call, you know, cogs in this massive money laundering machine are people in the diaspora that are used as money mules or nominees. That is people that hide the organized crime behind it. Or as I say, you know, for your financial listeners, regular people that aren't known to police in the diaspora, you know, provide uh, a front and they provide liquidity in China and North America to sort of balance these underground trades, which at the end of the day are the laundering of, you know, prostitution money, drug money, cash, and how that cycles into banks and Canadian real estate is our concern. Yeah. Okay. So... I, this is a totally off track question, but I have to ask it and we can make it brief. But in your view, is the the push to decriminalize in British Columbia, is that kind of like a is is the organized crime element uh, potentially an underlying factor in that in, in that push to decriminalize everything? Yeah, that's like. That's almost a philosophical question for me, but the first, I'll answer it in two parts. If we look at Canada's decriminalization of marijuana, let's look at what happened. You know, I, I know directly from my sources that now the top exporter of you know, whether it's legal or legal pot from Canada 
is Chinese organized crime. So did that experiment, you know, whatever side you come down on that, you know, if the argument was it gets organized crime out of that market, it's an abject failure. And who did it benefit? It benefited most, you know, Chinese organized crime, Mexican cartels and others. So is the decriminalization of, you know, fentanyl and things like this in British Columbia um, working? No, it's not. Already we can see that deaths are going up. Uh, already we can see public disorder is, uh, <laughs> is a huge story in British Columbia. And yet a judge comes back after a challenge and says, no, we're not going to keep, you know, fentanyl out of school, you know, playgrounds, yeah. you know. Right. It's just absurd. So um, the second way I'll answer your question is that um, one time I had like an off the record briefing with high level FinTrack uh, officials and uh, FinTrack is toothless, but there's great people working there. At the end of the day, they can't get things done because Minister of Finance, you know, Ottawa's government probably doesn't want them to get things done. I think that's the implication of the, the 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 fake Chinese income story. But a person in this meeting said, look, why does British Columbia, we know, you know, the Hells Angels are a bad group of dudes. They can't even declare them a, an official organized crime operation, right? Like they can't take a clubhouse hardly. The person's comment was 10 years of, of uh, some people trying to get the Hells Angels classified as a criminal organization and you can't do it in BC, that's corruption. So what does that tell you, right? If that is true, and I'm talking about a senior Canadian official with great knowledge, the person is pointing to corruption in the judiciary, corruption in BC's government. Yeah. I'll answer finally to your question, which is a great one. You know, is it, is organized crime involved in that failed decriminalization experiment? And don't, no one get me wrong. Any approach to reduce deaths and and get you know the the organ fentanyl off the streets is the right approach if it works. If it doesn't, it's it's the wrong approach and you have to revert. But could there be corruption involved in in what's going on in BC's government? I'd hate to accuse uh, the the premier David Eby of that, but I don't see good directions in BC. And, you know, the more I learn about uh, what's going on in Canada, we have to consider the possibility of who's benefiting most from that policy, which is not working. Absolutely. And that's that's kind of where I was going with it. Right. Like I I left B.C. in 2022. I'm in Alberta. The conservative government here in Alberta takes an entirely different approach. Right. They 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 um, they opted for treatment over decriminalization. Right. And. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a way more rational, way more logical approach to to deal with this problem. I I have friends, very people who are very close to me, who had problems with drugs, and their their main problem was not that they didn't have safe drugs to use; it was that they wanted to get clean, but they couldn't, and the treatment facility, the space in the treatment facilities, just wasn't available to them. So this policy in, in BC, you kind of see that like what comes along with it, right? Like it, you decriminalize everything. You have this massive housing bubble. You have tent cities popping up everywhere. It's it's complete dystopia. And it's like, it's as you said, it's it's just not working. So now I want to I wanna move over to Let the- me, Can I add one thing? You yeah, know, of course. To your point, I mean, I, I do believe, and I, I don't want to give the indication that I have really dug into this, but I'm very good at recognizing flags 
And I do think that people that are involved in the, the safer supply industry, let me just put it this way, you know, um, the same sort of, you know, stock scammers and, and fraudsters that, you know, I know are connected to organized crime. I, I believe those same types of people would be the same ones getting involved in, you know, legal marijuana ops and the same ones getting involved in safer supply ops. So in a roundabout way, that's again, pointing towards, you know, your question, is there corruption in, involved in the policy is the right question. Yeah. And it, well, yeah. And I mean, I, I can, again, I'm speaking on a lower level here, but, you know, I know people who are involved in the downtown east side of Vancouver for, again, for American listeners and other Canadians, the lower east side of Vancouver is a, it's a war zone. It's the zombie land. It's night of the living dead. And they've said that the safe supply programs don't work because what people do is they take the safe supply drugs that they get from the government, they flip it, and then they buy cheaper, dirtier drugs. Because really, at the end of the day, it's not a, if you're a drug addict, you're not worried about the purity of the drugs you're getting, you're worried about quantity and, and keeping yourself from being sick. Yeah, to my point about providing liquidity in criminal markets, I agree, safer supply. Again, if one life is really saved, we need to seriously consider, is this working and how can we make it work better? Can we get the fraud out of the system? But I've had Adam Zevo report for my platform, the Bureau, you know, a number of stories that this fraud involving safer supply, it is flipped mostly by, you know, uh, drug addict or organized crime networks. And again, if that's true, taxpayer funded opioids, which are called safer supply, are providing liquidity that is yeah. just more, <laughs> more heroin to a drug market, whether they're working or not. And I know it's a, I would add that it it's a hugely sensitive topic. And if any lives are being saved, work on that program, you know, get the fraud that is taking lives away. But, you know, I think there's enough evidence now that when you boil it down, it's just, uh, it's not working, you got to do something different. Absolutely. So let's uh, let's move back to the to the story um, because there's so much there. Uh, so what we're beginning to un to to understand here is is I guess what would be referred to as the Toronto model, right? And how does the Toronto model differ from the Vancouver model? Yeah. So this comes back to uh, this this FinTrack examination. They did they examined. 48,000 transactions, banking transactions during the pandemic. And this is something called Project Athena for people that care to follow the links. This started with uh, FinTrack and banks and the RCMP attempting to work together on the Vancouver model of casino money laundering, which my reporting revealed first in 2017. And so uh, FinTrack in their Project Athena tells banks about these red flags or indicators that, hey, you may be banking a fentanyl <laughs> uh, money laundering network. And you got to believe that, or you got to know that for a Canadian government agency to point to one community is, you know, it's going to be hugely sensitive, yeah. but it's just a recognition that Chinese underground banking, you know, and probably Iranian underground banking after that is the massive flow in Canada and it's massively flowing through our real estate and banks and having massive impacts that, you know, people will need to read the Bureau or, or my book to because we don't have 10 hours to talk about it. But um, so in a nutshell, again, uh, they in this alert, they said Chinese professional organized crime, global underground banking evolved during the pandemic 
because casinos were closed, of course, during the pandemic when we were all social distancing. And so this most easiest scaled up operation of Chinese money laundering using British Columbia and Ontario government, Quebec government casinos, mostly BC and Ontario growing, of course, that was shut down. So these extremely sophisticated global money laundering networks that serve uh, triads and cartels, fentanyl traffickers worldwide, quickly evolved. And so massive amounts of wire transfers from money service businesses in Hong Kong, mostly, start flowing into bank accounts that are owned by uh, diaspora members that claim occupations like student, housewife, office manager. And then the funds from China and Hong Kong are flowing through these uh, fraudulent front bank accounts that are essentially, you know, if you remember a money mule in the old days was someone that was given a bag of cash in Mexico and flown up to Toronto to pay someone off. A money mule in the Toronto method and in the modern times is someone that gives their bank account to this, this Chinese underground uh, banking scheme. And so um, bringing it back to my whistleblower, because I study and do my work, as soon as this person started sending me documents, I was like, bang, this is FinTrack's 20 pandemic operation alert, except I've got the details leaked from a banker who didn't even know about FinTrack's alert, but was like, I'm onto something massive. Yeah. And then I go back to you know the FinTrack alert and boom, this is what I call the Toronto method, the evolution of the Vancouver model. And, uh, you know, uh, Toronto was kind of a bit of an untouched journalistic territory in the real estate story for me, because there's a huge debate over, you know, why the younger generation can't afford homes. And I knew from my experience in Vancouver that um, once you can't afford a home in Vancouver, it starts to be you know, that the, the the price rises push out into other regional cities yeah. and they start to push out across the country. My family is an example. You're maybe you too. I moved oh, out of Vancouver to another yeah. city because I was forced out. We were forced out by what I discovered, yeah. this underground banking scheme connected to other countries. And so uh, in a nutshell, again, my source came to me uh, and said, I believe this, what, what, what he found, the fake Chinese income mortgages started to explain uh, Toronto's real estate prices because for your finance listeners, of course, you know, bank uh, mortgage uh, verification and due diligence is supposed to discover whether the borrow can, can really afford, you know, their, their home and whether they have uh, legitimate funds, hopefully. And what my source discovered was uh, an X and an X on both of those answers. Canadian banks are turning a, a, a huge blind eye to this underground banking scheme. They don't know where this money from China is coming in. And I'll add this, you know, I think that our government and the banks and a lot of people in business in general have kind of probably, in the, I would say Wall Street too. The States is the same story. They look at China and say, wow, what a success story, you know? Okay, yeah, we understand a lot of capital is fleeing from from yeah. China and and you know it's having an impact on cities around the world, but this is just capital flight, you know. This is people that, you know, they want to diversify. I'm saying no. It, it's all related to organized crime and fraud. And that as a as I say, there's no question in my mind Vancouver was made absurdly unaffordable 
by this method of crime and the same thing in Toronto. Perhaps maybe, you know, we know that Toronto's homes are slightly less costly than Vancouver, but I'm saying that the story is the same. You know, there's not enough legitimate incomes in Toronto to support, you know, their, their home prices. People that work for a living, whether you're a doctor or a lawyer or a judge, you're being priced out of Toronto. And it's the same story. It's because of organized crime. Yeah, so I have I have two questions to follow that, that up with. I mean, first of all, in the Vancouver model, what we see is is people buying, just buying homes just with cash, just buying them outright. But in this Toronto model, what we're seeing is people actually applying for mortgages. Do, do you know why that is? Yeah, well, you're you're half right on that, I would say. Okay. I, I'm saying the Toronto method has has scaled up and explained actually what was happening in Vancouver, which is that yeah, people were buying. There's a substantial amount of people that would buy a home in Vancouver, let's say with a, a $2 million or, you know, return of casino funds check or a bank draft. And these were criminals. These are gangsters and, you know, the people in their networks. But very often, the same story. It was students or housewives buying, you know, that $15 million mansion in Shaughnessy. As we know, students and housewives, they don't have any... They don't have income that something else was coming in. So they were getting, you know, let's say a bank draft from your casino money laundering scheme for say 300,000 is, is a good number I've seen. And then they were claiming, you know, I've got wealth in China or my, my husband is some executive in China. And that's why all these wire transfers for my mortgage payments for my $15 million Shaughnessy mansion are justifiable. Right. And uh, there have been studies in Vancouver that showed, you know, students, housewives, recent Chinese migrants owned the major portions of affluent neighborhoods. And I'm saying, no, there if you're a housewife with a mortgage uh, and you said your husband is, you know, an executive in, in Guangzhou in like a tech company. No, what, what I found is that's a fake your husband's job is fake. You don't have any income and you're getting money laundered from China in. Uh, are you a fentanyl trafficker? Quite possibly. Are you just part of this fraud network? Could be. Are you becoming a mini landlord and now you've got five homes in Vancouver or Toronto? Because you have the ability to fund these fraudulent mortgages from our Canadian bank. Yes. So that's the Toronto method and it applies to Vancouver. I, uh, I, I established that, you know, with, with researchers and academics that say what you found in Toronto now answers a a piece, a big piece of the puzzle that was missing in Vancouver. Yeah. And you know, so what really jumped out at me in your report is, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe I'm incorrect here, but from what I've always understood is that like wire transfers, you know, $10,000 and over always get flagged for verification. And here you have millions, right? So yeah, no, I mean, that that's a very good assumption because you know this is way this is the way a, an advanced uh, democratic nation is supposed to work. It's not working that way in Canada. Um, if you recall, FinTrack, you know, they're taking baby steps. They handed out some million dollar fines in late 2023 to the big banks. You know, in one case, uh, I believe it was uh, you know examination of thousands of transactions found CIBC wasn't reporting wire transfers. We don't know the reasons behind the details. Uh, I'm saying 
the probability is off the charts that this relates to what my whistleblower in Toronto, uh, you know, has found mm -hmm. and what, uh, you know, the, the Project Athena FinTrack broader alert says. So banks are not reporting, they're not complying with their obligation to report suspicious wire transfers or doing the due diligence to discover, you know, that currency exchange in Hong Kong that has what I call, you know, its mirror in, you know, uh, in Scarborough or Markham or, or Richmond or Burnaby, yeah. how they are, you know, involved in organized crime networks that are flooding wire transfers into these uh, money mule bank accounts in Toronto or Vancouver. So no, uh, Canadian banks and FinTrack and the Minister of Finance, the Prime Minister are not on top of this problem. And I'll finish my answer here. You know, um, I I know because I'm informed uh, by by a source in federal policing that several of the people that my book dealt with who are involved currently in Chinese police station investigations, who are real estate developers in Vancouver, who are connected to you know Chinese communist intelligence networks or United Front Work Department leaders. I was told a small group was responsible for over a billion dollars in suspicious FinTrack wire transfers. Okay, I'm talking about a handful of people that I'm saying are involved in the Chinese police station investigation and uh, you know the Chinese United Front foreign interference story and how that ties into, you know, you ask, are we are banks reporting this? And no, FinTrack knows what's going on. RCMP knows what's going on. The Canadian public are, I'm sorry here, they're being treated like ignorant serfs because this is a huge problem. Yeah. And and it's so in your story, you know, with your your whistleblower, your whistleblower passed this information up the chain many times. Your your whistleblower, in fact, circumvented a lot of the management that that your whistleblower believed was involved in this and went straight to the executive level and sent numerous emails with with documents basically stating, look, this is what's happening. What was the response uh, your whistleblower received? Right. So uh, HSBC Canada, first, their response to my questions, uh, I I sought interviews with an appropriate manager and I, I sent a bunch of inf a lot of information regarding, you know, the allegations and documents. And they responded, uh, you know, uh, HSBC is an international bank and they're at the forefront of uh, detecting shady business and they will exit clients. Uh, and so that was their response. And you know, I, uh, I've i got more than one story to deal with that response and how other banks, you know, maybe should or shouldn't respond to that. But uh, back to our whistleblower. Uh, yes, uh, the the young the young man from India who was an international student. And I the word in my mind was he showed principled audacity <laughs> in, in, and uh, and something psychologically, I recognize I'm not a doctor of psychology, but the whistleblowers I deal with, it's funny when they come to me, they say, I can't sleep with what I've found. Yeah. You know, I have to tell someone it's not getting taken care of. This is why they come to me because I now have a track record. And the whistleblower went right to the executive level with these allegations saying he believed he'd discovered fellow employees colluding in these networks, pocketing kickbacks, which, you know, would be considered criminal, whether a fraudulent loan in itself is a predicate crime. Yeah. I, you know, we're living in Canada. I can't guarantee that mm -hmm. it is, or will our government deal with it? But 
He said he had discovered reasons why Canadians can't afford homes and massive fraud. And to his credit, he triggered an internal investigation in 2022. And the documents that I reviewed said that HSBC did make some reforms, apparently around income verification. And so uh, all I can say is the bank says it has taken some steps. The whistleblower uh, in emails and in interviews with me said it's not enough. This is, uh, this is a level of concern where the bank should be disclosing to uh, police of jurisdiction or the Canadian Revenue Agency, uh, we need more action because, uh, you know, that retrospectively even, even if you exit a client that's involved in fraud, doesn't mean that their mortgage is paid out. It could still be on the books, right? And so um, some actions were taken, but uh, quite obviously the whistleblower uh, was still losing sleep. Uh, and, and that's why they came to me. Yeah, and, you know, the thing that confuses me is you know, when I was reading your story is, is that these banks are taking on just tremendous amount of risk, right? Because these aren't, this isn't like Sam Cooper, you know, with his, with his salary paying a mortgage every month, right? Like this is organized crime. If for whatever reason, these people just decide to leave, that's it. Like there's, there's no, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's no recourse there. And so the thing that I kept wondering is like, where, and maybe you can answer this is, is you know, what benefit do, do they get from being involved in this uh, aside from facilitating the transfers? I mean, you mentioned that there, there were potentially people on the inside getting kickbacks, but I would imagine that those are all low level employees who are all, who are all overseeing the transfers, right? I mean, for, for upper management and executives, what benefit is there to being involved in something of this scale? Well, I mean, um, your your U.S. listeners will know very well the U.S. subprime mortgage story of, you know, fake incomes, no incomes, uh, loans that people knew were garbage, you know, in outer suburbia from major cities. Uh, the, these were packaged up by, uh, you know, Wall Street investment banks and, you know, the big bank managers themselves found a way what they believe to, you know, spread out the risk from garbage loans that pumped up the US real estate market. And when uh, the music stopped, as they say, and these, uh, these uh, you know, toxic loan products, that is the collection of bad loans from Wall Street, it weren't working and they were starting to, you know, fall in value, uh, then, then the banks were on the hook for losses and they had to get bailed out. So there was a huge toxic loan risk there and the U.S. paid for it. And the real estate market is much is very sane now, is very much is pretty balanced, I think. In Canada, as you're indicating, I'm saying and fellow experts after they review my work are saying, yes, Canada has a major amount of toxic loans specifically related to these transnational underground banking networks. First of all, China, Iran. Russia will be in there too. India will be in there. Middle Eastern countries, hostile, you know, authoritarian regimes. Uh, you know, in some cases, yeah, good, uh, very good Iranian or, or, or people and, and people from China escaping from bad regimes and having, well, they say having to use these crime networks. I just don't see why or how Canada's government 
and the banks, casinos, you know, law offices have turned a blind eye to, to saying, you know, underground banking isn't in itself illegal. Therefore, you know, these informal value transfer systems, we're going to, you know, we'll take our chances. We'll let this go. And uh, but what has happened, as I'm saying, is real estate markets have gotten pumped up beyond belief in Vancouver and Toronto due to this. And you're right. Uh, let's just say that, you know, someone at a high level in China says, actually, we have kind of a good measure of control over, unfortunately, diaspora populations. We want to cause a little financial turmoil. You can envision scenarios where 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 loans stop getting paid. I mean, that might sound extreme, but, you know, that's something. I think the more present danger is, as I'm saying, you know, I'm saying hundreds of billions, it's reasonable to say hundreds of billions have flowed into Vancouver and Toronto real estate through underground banking networks, which have direct organized crime sort of funnels in them, if you want to put it this way. And banks, as one of my experts in my story, SFU academic Andy Yan said, the banks are are, are giving out loans to amplify this method of underground banking transfer. So uh, countless billions of dollars worth of, of mortgage loans in Canada that at the end of the day have connectivity to organized crime in other countries. There's no, if anyone in this country can justify that or give me a good argument for that, I welcome it, but I, I, I wish them luck as well because I can't see one. Yeah, and you know, I, I, I keep, I, I, what, what really perplexes me here is that it seems like we've been pushed into a scenario where we almost have to allow this behavior to continue because if for whatever reason, the, the, the flow of money is stemmed, we could find ourselves taking a swan dive into a financial collapse like what we saw in the United States in two thousand eight, right? Yeah, my thoughts on that are I I have, you know, in the course of me doing these stories, I was hearing little, you know, insider whispers coming back from the Cullen Commission for your American and, and more Canadian listeners. This is the BC Anti-Money Laundering Commission based off, you know, what was happening in government casinos, how big was the issue in BC real estate. And they 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 found out, as I said, it was huge, it was massive, yeah. but I uh the 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 hearings on banks involvement in that were held confidentially for what reason right that's already a red flag there yeah. and i was hearing whispers from the inside coming back that they're edgy about what their what impact on the real estate market which is you know i don't know how many 90% of vancouver's economy or whatever yeah. of what impact it will have if you know, if they really get to the absolute bottom of this and not just as I as I've reported, you know, they discovered 1.2 billion cash through BC government casinos in one year, 2014, all related to the Chinese underground banking model. OK, those are casinos, 1.2 billion dollars, as my research showed, that's one year. All of these whale gamblers from China were involved in real estate development in Vancouver. All of them, the loans were secured by Vancouver property. So as I say, you put a multiple of, just doing a little math here, 10 or 15 times 1.2 billion 
is a very conservative estimate of how much money is laundered into Vancouver real estate in one year on this same Vancouver model or Toronto method, if you want to call it, is uh, is what I'm saying. And so you're right. Um, if uh, if the music stopped on this crime model, you know, next month, I do think that'll be a material impact to Canada's economy. Does that mean that we can't not deal with this? No, we have to deal with it. But, you know, with proper statecraft, diplomatically, turn the ship around inch by inch, but turn it around. It's just like we talk about de-risking or friendshoring our economy because we can no longer, you know, trust that China is not going to start World War III with Russia, right? We have to diversify. We have to quietly and diplomatically walk away from hostile state trade. And I'm saying we need to do the same with our real estate markets in a very rational way yeah because it you know that's the thing is now it's so interwoven with organized crime and foreign money laundering that you know it's it's hard to pick it apart and you know i'll speculate here and this isn't sam saying this this is me saying this i believe these people are at the bottom of it i believe they know exactly what's happening and they're just terrified because now this thing has snowballed to a point where yeah if they do stop it or if china decides to walk away for whatever reason Oof, it's all over, you know? I mean, that's good military thinking, really. I mean, the readers of the Bureau include people in the CIA, in the Pentagon, Canadian Armed Forces, RCMP, CSIS. Yeah, no, if you're really thinking, like, it is true. You always follow the money in anything. The world, money makes the world go round. And um, as I say, if 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 we want to stop Russia from from going into Ukraine, you know, and or, or, you know, marching across Europe, we start to mess with their financial system. And that means they can mess with our financial systems if they want to do the same thing. We just saw a report from the FBI that that China is not just, you know, stealing IP from Fortune 500 companies. They now have eyes on American critical infrastructure. So if we go kinetic in a war, if if uh, China goes into Taiwan, you know, in 2027, all these big picture plays, does China want to shut down, you know, our real estate market if we're being very sophisticated and, and on the edge in our thinking? We already know that they want to get into our water supply or whatever. So, I mean, I'm not saying that um, I'm saying you're asking the right questions and I hear the same sorts of thinking from people in the military. Yeah. Okay. And, and just one final question before, before we wrap it up, but um, for our American listeners, because the thing is, I, I, you know, I've, I've talked to Brian O'Shea. He's now a friend of mine. He's former uh, U S military intelligence, uh, JJ Carroll. He's a, a retired border agent in, in, in along the U S Southern border. And they're starting to ask the same questions that you were asking a decade ago and are now finding the answers too. And so for our American listeners, um, can you do you have any knowledge of of what's happening in the US is the same model occurring in different cities or is it changing is it like what's what's the impact that this i mean i, I don't know how to describe it this this rat's nest of money laundering in canada is it is it leaking into the US now yeah it's already there big time i mean cities like san francisco have had the same historically deeply inter-embedded triad networks. 
which, you know, as I'm saying, unfortunately, uh, you know, the wonderful diaspora communities that add so much to North America, portions of them are deeply controlled by, by triads, which I'm saying are controlled by, you know, Chinese military or intelligence. That's happening uh, in America. The same things we're talking about here, you know, are happening probably not at the same scale because America has a real justice system and has uh, real institutions and, and has an empowered military and intelligence community, has an empowered FBI. But what really interests me in this U.S. southern border story is just the scale of what, what's being seen there is, I believe, waking up the U.S. public to the threat from China uh, and and what is going on, you know, what is causing that? And, you know, two points to finish up here. I saw um, just days ago on Twitter, I saw a border patrol agent in, I think it was India or, or whichever city, you know, involved and said uh, the tweet was um, they, they, had, they had caught a number of Chinese asylum uh, seekers with all kinds of faked uh, driver's licenses and all kinds of fake yeah. documents. Yeah. And I said, bang, this is exactly, exactly what I expected would happen. And this is exactly how the, the, the triads work. You know, they will send people in, whether this is a flow of migrants caused by much deeper in problems in China than, than Beijing wants anyone in the world to know. You know, we know their economy is crashing. So a lot of people are probably are running away. How are they running away? They're running away through a uh, triad snakehead human smuggling operations. They're being facilitated by Mexican cartels. So we've got good people running away, but they're getting there through bad people. And I'm saying within that flow will be very, very, very bad Chinese transnational crime. And it shows through what I'm saying, the Border Patrol found same sort of fake documentation that my book discovered, the Big Circle Boys triad or transnational gang would be found with when they invaded Canada. Yeah. And, and you know, like, I think when we think about warfare, we always think about conventional war, right? And, you know, you see these videos of, you know, uh, I don't know, thousands of, of military aged Chinese men just pouring through the border. And we always imagine, oh, like, well, what are they going to do? Like, we think about death and destruction and 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 conventional war but this is a different this is a different type of war this is this is digital this is cybernetic this is money laundering it's it's it is to a whole different level and that's the thing that people really have to wrap their minds around this is this is there there are no boundaries here and this is not conventional in any sense um sam man I love talking to you. You scare me to death, but I love talking to you. Every time I'm I talking to you, you ask you ask good questions and you're talking to the right people as well. So it's great talking to you. Well, thank you, sir. Every time I open my email, I see Sam Cooper. I'm like, okay, it's time to make a coffee because this is gonna be a minute. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna have to sit with this for a while. Yeah. Um, Sam, can you tell everybody where they can find you? Yeah, you can uh you come to the bureau.news. Uh, that's my platform on Substack right now. But as I like to say, I've got my own custom, the bureau.news website all ready to go if need be. Uh, the, the platform is building well. And, and uh, I think, uh, you know, lots of good things are happening. And you can also find me on Twitter, 
at Scooper Cooper, which has been my uh, journalism handle since tw- 2008 on Twitter, I believe. And it's perfect. It's it's the it's the best Twitter username. I've it it applies perfectly. Um, Sam, you know, I I I don't want to blow smoke, but man, I really believe that what you're doing is Pulitzer Prize level journalism. Um, I think that you're you've made a reputation for yourself for being integral uh, in in our country, and I think internationally as well. You know, I've talked to other uh, high profile journalists, and they all know who you are. And, and I think uh, your reputation speaks for itself. Your work speaks for itself. And uh, people out there listening, um, go to the Bureau. It's, the Bureau is one of those, you know, uh, uh, news outlets that you can go to and you can trust. Uh, it's not propaganda. There's no political bias involved. It's just Sam giving you the facts straight up. And uh, he doesn't really care whose feelings get hurt. So I encourage you all to go to the Bureau.news, subscribe. And you can open your emails twice a week and get freaked out just like me. <laughs> thanks, man. I'll, I'll take that pitch. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again, Sam. I, I appreciate it. I look forward to talking again. Good. Have a nice day.